Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that as we go through this uh, sermon series on Isaiah, as we begin with these chapters uh, pronouncing your judgment on your people 2,700 years ago, uh, you're giving us this hard pill to swallow in order for us to be able to understand uh, how we, even as your people, uh, all through the generations, have been people who are faithless and who have failed you in many ways, and to be able to see how great and loving and gracious and glorious you really are in persisting with us, in being patient with us, uh, in transforming us, and in restoring us to the people that you save us to be. We pray this, morning, this afternoon as we go through these uh, chapters of Isaiah, as we hear the rebuke from your word, uh, that you'll soften our hearts to receive it, that we would be led to want to confess our sins, to see how we have not lived out the calling you've given us, and how we can, uh, from here on, and press on, learning from Israel uh, and living your way. Uh, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I had a good friend in high school. Uh, his name is Ian Carapetto. Have you ever heard the name before, Ian Carapetto? Really, you should have heard his name before, because Ian was, uh, or possibly is, but he's a bit old now, right? He, he was one of the most gifted athletes uh, of my generation. Uh, he was a sprinter, right? 100-meter sprinter. Uh, and he... He had better test measures in the Queensland Academy of Sport, which he was a part of, uh, than Matt Shervington, who was the Australian national champion at the time. Matt Shervington uh, ran a personal best of 10.03 seconds, uh, and Ian Carapetto, my good friend, uh, he scored better in the QAS tests for raw ability than Matt Shervington. He really should have been the guy, the first Australian man to break the 10-second barrier for 100-meter sprint back in 1996 or 97, when he was at his peak. But instead, Patrick Johnson was the first man who did it, about 10 years after that. Now, I'm certain none of you have ever heard of Ian. Even Steve, who was in the same school as I, never heard of Ian, even though we were three years apart in school, because he failed to live up to his potential. Right? He just failed to live up to his potential. And he had a massive potential, more than any other Australian in my generation. You know, that, that potential uh, that he had was like, almost like a calling for him. If anyone was called to be a sprinter in his lifetime, to make a name for himself, it was Ian in 100-meter sprinting. Now, as uh, I was Googling through the week about, you know, missed potential, there are heaps of hits, right, on Google about stories of people who didn't about their potential. Celebrities like Macaulay Culkin. Anyone know who he is? Home Alone, right? Uh, some of you nodded people there. A famous child actor who... Just lost the plot. <clears throat> Different sports stars who got caught up with drugs and alcohol and whatever other nonsense that, that failed to live up to the potential they showed in high school or in college. Maybe personally we know friends, right? When you do those yearbooks, the one most like, voted most likely to succeed in life because of their talents, of their intellect, their looks, their family backgrounds. But then now, five, ten years later, and, and you shake your head. Right? They're, they're a great disappointment, People are a great disappointment when their potential is so high and then they fail to meet it. That's what makes us such a great disappointment, isn't it? You see, God's people have always been the people who had the greatest potential. Out of all the peoples in the entire world, God's people had the greatest potential to do the greatest good. Right? Uh, they had the greatest possession of all because they were called to live out the holy, eternal calling of the Creator God. 
They had the biggest and best calling of all. They had the greatest potential to do the greatest good. But what did God's people do with that calling? What did God's people do with that calling? Now, as we heard last week from Isaiah chapter 1, it doesn't look good, does it, for God's children. They were sinful children who were rebellious uh, and who rejected God. And we probably already know the answer to whether they will live out their calling, whether they will fulfill their potential. As we look into these next few chapters, we're going to see that they do not fulfill their potential, that they do not live out the calling. And the question for us this morning would be, are we just like Israel? Are we as God's people 2,700 years later from the time of Israel here just the same as Israel? And will we learn from their failings, from their sins? Now, as you get open to Isaiah chapter 2, verse 1, verse 1 to 4 gives us a vision, right, a future vision of what ideal Israel, ideal Judah and Jerusalem should have looked like. Right? So Judah is the, the, the country, the little jelly bean country we saw last week. Jerusalem is its capital city. What should they, they have been like? Verse 1 to 4 tells us. In verse 2, we see that they were, they were the city who bore Yahweh's name. So Yahweh is the personal name of God, right? Uh, they were meant to be Yah, uh, the city that bears Yahweh's name, sitting gloriously on top of the highest mountain. It's a picture of being in the supreme position, being the most influential, right, on top of the mountains, a place where everyone will look up and go, wow, how glorious is that city of God? How glorious are those people who worship that God? And the nations will stream to that mountain. And why will they go there? Because they will want to know God, right? They will want to know His laws and His ways and to live by them. Verse 3, right? The nations will come so that they can come to know this God, this Yahweh, sitting atop this holy mountain, the God of the city, of this people who express this holy God. Now, when you think about that, right? The nations will come to know God's laws and to live God's ways. Is that not the entire reversal of the human problem? For sin is about rebelling and rejecting God. If the nations of the world were to come and seek after God, to know His word and to live His ways... That is nothing less than the entire reversal of the human problem of sin, of rebellion and rejection. And it tells us that the result would have been glorious. If Jerusalem had lived out its ideal, the future would have been glorious. People are drawn together from all nations in worship of God. The nations which were warring at the time, the Assyrian Empire rising, the Babylonian Empire rising, all their civil war, it would have all ceased as the weapons of war would be melted down and remade into weapons, not weapons, instruments of farming, of building up societies, of, of peace. That would have been the ideal that would have resulted in Jerusalem, Zion, being this city of God. You see, Judah and Jerusalem were supposed to lead the nations into blessings, just as God had promised their forefather Abraham, right? Famous promise, Genesis 12, verse 3. When God said to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Right? Israel was chosen, was elected to have this purpose, to be blessed by God and to be a channel of blessing to the nations as they showed God's word and God's ways and God's glory, which made these nations say, I want to be there. I want to know that God. I want to be blessed. 
But in showing us this ideal in the first four verses of this chapter, we come to see just how far short God's people fell, how miserably and disappointingly they squandered their calling of God. As we'll see, they just simply refused to live out their calling. And the big problem for Israel was the issue of pride. Right? They wanted glory for themselves. They wanted to be just like the world around them. Now, chapter 2 to 5 pronounces condemnation and woes for a great number of things. But the root of them all is the issue of pride. Right? Have a look at verse 9. Right? Verse 9. The, the issue is pride and the judgment is for God to humble them, right? So man is humbled and each one is brought low. Do not forgive them. Verse 11, the haughty, the prideful looks of man shall be brought low and the lofty pride of man shall be humbled and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Verse 17, and the haughtiness of man will be humbled and the lofty pride of man shall be brought low and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Can you see the problem? It's pride. Can you see the judgment? It's humility, humbling. And then finally, verse 22, I think sums up for us perfectly the problem for God's people, right? God says to the people, stop, stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath. For what account is he? Stop worrying about what man thinks. Stop chasing after what man chases. Stop being concerned with the glories, right? The pursuits of man. Now, let me just say quickly about this issue of pride, right? We often think of pride as being feeling full of yourself, right? Very high and mighty. And that is certainly the, the best way of understanding pride, right? Wanting to, to be seen to be high, right? In your, by yourself and for other people to see you that way. But did you also know that having low self-esteem is also an issue of pride? You ever thought about that? Because what you care about when you have low self-esteem is that you don't look good enough based on your values of, that you set for yourself, or that you don't feel good enough based on the values that other people set for you. So whether you feel high and mighty and puffed up, or whether you feel low in your self-esteem and depressed, they're both expressions of pride, of regarding man's views of you, of regarding your own view of yourself as being the most important thing to chase after. You see, for God's people, who they were as God's people wasn't enough, right? Seeking after God and His glory wasn't enough. They wanted more from the world of man. And in doing so, they denied God and they denied God's calling for their lives. Now, we see this in many ways throughout these chapters, but I'm going to pick up three that are from chapter 2, okay? Pick up three from chapter 2. Now, before I do that, is anyone else feeling like they're becoming made into an ice cream? I have an ice cream maker at home, and I feel like I'm being churned to become an ice cream. Okay, so uh, is there a person who has got the controls over the weather? Can you turn this one off? It's like I barely can speak. I'm like, Jesus. Okay, as Jess goes about doing that, we'll try and keep pressing on, okay? So... Three ways, three ways we see in this passage how man denies their calling and denies God because they want more from the world of man. And the first is that God's people sought after human means to gain extra spirituality. Oh, thanks, Jess. Sometimes too much of a good thing is really too much of a good thing. Okay, so 
they sought after human means of getting extra spirituality. Look at verse 6, right? Chapter 2, verse 6. Head back in now. Don't worry about the beeping. Okay? Verse 6. For you have rejected your people, the house of Jacob, because they are full of things from the east and of fortune tellers like the Philistines, and they strike hands with the children of foreigners. You see, for the people of God, it wasn't enough for them to know the word and the ways of God. Right? It wasn't enough just to have the revelation from God through the prophets. They wanted the things from the east, right? So the east here, to Judah, is Assyria, Babylon, the eastern empires. They wanted the ways that the, the, the Philistines of the north and how they got stuff, which is through uh, fortune tellers. And then, you know, in other parts of scripture, we, we know that the eastern uh, empires, they sought knowledge from their spiritual world through necromancy, like talking to the dead, through astrology, right, learning from the stars, uh, and, and through divinations, right, trying to get uh, a connection with the divine to be able to know more spiritual things and to feel more spiritual highs. Their way to connect with the divine and to get more guidance. God's elect weren't satisfied with a clear revelation through God's prophets. And so they sought after the things from the East, the things from the Philistines, these other spiritualities. It seemed to work for these other people to make them great. So Israel said, let me in on that. Right? Let me pursue and get those things for myself. See, our desire for greater and more can so often lead us to seek after spiritual experiences and knowledge apart from God's clear, revealed word. Right? God makes it so clear that his word is enough. But we don't think it's enough. We want more. We want to be like other people. And so it could be something quite innocent, like opening up the newspaper. We don't do it anymore, right? It's like opening up your whatever magazine or whatever app, and there's a horoscope on there. And you go, oh, well, nothing harmful to just check out what's the word for the cancer people today. I mean, not like cancer disease, but, you know, the star sign cancer. This is me, by the way, I'm cancer. And then you, you go searching for something to confirm what you want for the day. Maybe you will have successes in your relationships today. And I'm like, whoa, cool, maybe I'll actually get through to my children. And then so I'll, I'll trust in the words of the astrology, their horoscope. Yeah, it could be something as innocent as that kind of dabbling. Or it could be something more committed, something more wholehearted, a buying in of the spiritualities that even Christians sell. To think that I want more dreams and visions in my life. I want to, to have this uh, spiritual connection where I feel this sense of stillness or ecstasy in my spirituality. I want, I want a deeper feeling. And I want all the gifts, right, that are littered throughout scriptures and more. And really, when you think about some of these expressions of Christian spirituality, they are no different to Eastern mysticism and New Age spirituality. They are borrowed from the religions of the world. But God's people seek after these things because we want more. We want to lift ourselves higher. You want to feel like a first-class Christian because you feel second-class when other people seem to have it. In doing so, God's glory is robbed. We are saying to God, your revelation to us through your word is not enough. Your revelation to us is not enough. And in seeking after these extra spiritualities, God is denied, and God's elect fail in their calling to draw people to God. Because you really draw people to these experiences and not to God. 
when you so chase after these things that make you feel spiritually high. It's not God. Now, the second thing we see in, in, the, in Israel is that they made idols and gods with their own hands, right? Verse 8. Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. Now, when you think of idol worship, we usually think it means that people are worshipping a power that's higher than themselves, right? You think about it, you're bowing down to some idol. They were probably, you're probably thinking, well, they're bowing down to someone who thinks can rule them or give them things, someone higher than them. But when you think about it, the idols that man creates are often about worshipping ourselves, right? You create an idol that will give you what you want. So if you go back to that time, the eastern idol of fertility was worship in order that you may have fertile land and fertile wombs. It also has the added benefit in those days of having temple prostitutes, right? So the men who had an extra perk in worshipping this god of fertility. And then the gods, the idols of gold and silver, they're there to give you, as you've guessed it, gold and silver, right? You worship this god to give you what you want. You end up fashioning an idol that you worship in order for you to be, for you to be built up, for you to be worshipped. You see, idolatry was about making gods that would make much of you, not for you to make much of it. Idolatry was about making gods that would make much of you, rather than you making much of it. Now, modern-day idolatry is the same. Very few of us would go out and carve a piece of wood to worship or fashion something out of metal or gold to worship. But we still have objects and ideas and people that we worship, don't we? Whether it's our studies or our work, whether it's our performance or our achievements, whether it's our parents or our children or our lovers, whether it's precious objects or fulfilling experiences, there are things in our lives in which we chase after with the vigor and the dedication of worship. And these objects of worship are worship because it makes us look great or feel great. Right? We, we worship because there's some benefit in making our lives better and greater. And like I said, it doesn't have to make you feel better or greater. It can make you feel worse when you fail right? to achieve the worship that you want out of these objects or people or ideas. Low self-esteem and pride are still the same issue. Self-made idols. God is denied when we do that. When we worship idols, God is denied. And God's elect fail in their calling to draw people to God. It is a rejection of God, a way to show that God isn't glorious enough for our undivided worship. What makes us think we can tell someone else to worship God with undivided worship when we don't believe that and we don't live that out. Now, the third thing we see here with Israel, with Judah and Jerusalem, is that they sought after money and power. Verse 7. Now, this one's really big. Okay? This is a big issue here. Verse 7. Their land is filled with silver and gold, and there is no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses, and there is no end to their chariots. Now, it's pretty clear that gold and silver are expressions of money and luxury. Right? They didn't have uh, physical cash. Gold and silver, right? expressions of money and luxury. Horses and chariots are expressions of power. Right? Horses are what you go to war with. You've got a chariot pulling you along. Right? Whichever army has more horses and chariots wins. It's like the arms race right, of the 8th century BC. These were the currency of status and influence in their world. 
Now, remember why this is so tempting. For Judah is that jelly bean-sized country in the midst of these Game of Thrones, right? The Syrian Empire, the Babylon Empire. They had money. They had power. Judah was weak and powerless. They were so tempted to chase after these things, to make themselves more in this world. They looked at themselves as human looked at, looked at humans and decided they needed to make more of themselves. In the world's eyes, they were weak and small. They wanted to be big and powerful. Now, in Isaiah's time, it was particularly the men who were taken in by the lure of power to boost their egos, right? So we see this in verse 11, chapter 2, verse 11. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low, and the lofty pride of man shall be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low, against all the cedars of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up, against all the oaks of Bashan, against all the lofty mountains, against all uplifted hills, against every high tower, against every fortified wall, against all the ships of Tarshish, and against all the beautiful craft. Now, once again, poetry, right? It takes us a bit of time to figure out what's going on here. But these are all symbols of power. The cedars of Lebanon, right? You just search that in the Bible app, and you'll see it come up many times as an expression of, of these awesome trees that I cut down to build awesome structures. Same with the oaks of Bashan, right? Beautiful oaks that we use to build the temple and, and palaces. Ships of Tarshish are the giant merchant ships that show that you made it in life, that you can go across the seas, which were in those days things that killed you, the sea, dangerous place. But the ships of Tarshish just sail over them easily to be able to do your trade, to make a name for yourself. These represent an ability for humans, humanity, to stand tall on your own in great pride and self-sufficiency. And the people, the men of God, chased after these things. The ambition and pride of men back then continues on today. And thanks to equal opportunity employment, women are in on this too. It's not just the men who want to make a name for themselves, it's the women too, right? And that's why I guess something like what Bloom is talking about is so hard, especially for women to hear today. And let me encourage you to hear what actually it is and what it isn't. Uh, men and women seeking to make a name for themselves today. It's not enough for God's people to bear God's name. It is not enough for God's people to bear God's name. We want to make a name for ourselves in this world. And so God's people get caught up in these proud pursuits of power. We get caught up in our studies, and we devote ourselves to get the best marks, to give us the best possible future in this world. We get caught up with climbing the career ladder. We get caught up with buying and buying bigger and bigger houses, building up our businesses, boosting our financial portfolios so that we can feel proud and secure in the eyes of man. Now, let me say clearly, it's not bad having an education. It's not bad having a job. It's not bad having somewhere to live. But it's when those things are trying to fuel your pride and make you someone in this world, that's when it's leading to a denial of God and a denial of our calling to be God's elect, to draw people to God. For the more that we regard worldly power and achievements, the less we will have the energy and time to regard God and His glory. 
As Jesus says, you cannot serve two masters. You can only serve one and not the other. Now, in the next chapter, Isaiah turns his attention from the men who got whacked in chapter 2 to the women, right? Um, Isaiah is pretty fair that way. If the men were consumed with the need for power, the women in that time were captured by luxury. Chapter 3, verse 16. Chapter 3, verse 16. The Lord said, Because the daughters of Zion are haughty and walk with outstretched necks, glancing wantonly with their eyes, mincing along as they go, tinkling with their feet. Now, I'm not sure we catch, it, we catch the imagery here. Like, outstretched necks is like super oxe, you know, Cantonese, very proud. I think James got that one. That's good. Um, glancing wantonly, you know, wantonly is, uh, I don't know, uh, proudly with the eyes. And then we hear from verse 17, uh, 18 onwards that these, these women are decked out in luxury, right? The finery of their anklets and armlets, sashes and perfume boxes and amulets, signet rings and nose rings and festal robes and mantles and cloaks and handbags. And on and on it goes, right? Isaiah really knew his fashion, didn't he? Right, the women and their accessories and their clothing. Uh, how much can you have? I was watching this uh, YouTube video during the week about the mysteries of a woman's handbag. Who's seen that one? <laughs> yeah, you've seen it, right? Well, this woman, whatever you need, you can pull out of the handbag, right? And then we know that women don't just have one handbag. They've got the clutch bag, then they've got the small size handbag, then the large size handbag, then what? Got backpack, got cabin luggage. Got, you know, the, the accessories for handbags alone is mad. And today, the men are in on accessories as well, right? The men have their different cufflinks, their different ties for different occasions. Bow tie is back in fashion. We've got our different hats, different suits for different occasions, different shoes. And then we have our uh, smartwatch, our mechanical watch, our automatic watch, our diver's watch, our dress watch. And then we've got our phones, right? And our tablets, because the phone is just too small, you need tablets. And then if something in between, tablet, also have. Right, a phone tablet. Then you got your laptop. Then you got your desktop. And then I don't know what other top. There's no other tops to put for cameras. It just keeps going, right? Cameras. Now, this is what I can talk a lot about because this is my struggle. Right? Accessorizing my life. I've got a camera for almost every occasion, from the smallest to the largest, depending on the occasion. And you can find your own life, in your own life, what luxuries, what accessorizing you are doing luxury after luxury all drawing attention to how far we've made it in life or how much we're committed to the things of this world the treasures of this world is riches and luxuries is really what this world chases after isn't it is the high life in the eyes of man now, as back in Israel's day, as it is in our day, it leads the people of God to ditch our holy calling. If we so love the luxury of this worldly city, why would you care about the glories of the heavenly one, of Zion? If you're so busy chasing after this worldly city's treasures, you won't have time or energy or care to chase after the treasures of the kingdom of God. As a result, we deny God and we deny our holy calling to draw people to God, to that holy city, that better city. Because our lives show that this earthly city is better than anything else. It's all that there is. 
Now, like I said, these three, four chapters in Isaiah will go on to talk about other areas, right, in which we deny God and deny our calling. And chapter 5, in a sense, is kind of, uh, when you get to the end of chapter 5, the second half, there's this woe after woe, and in each woe, God is calling out different sins, different rebellions, different things, right, that lead us away from God. And I'll get you to read that on your own. But in the midst of all this, there, 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 are, there are causes, isn't it? There are the reasons why God's people ends up like this. Now, chapter 2 and chapter, two, chapter 5 makes it clear that pride, the human desire to be regarded well by man, is the root cause. But there are other additional factors, right, that contribute to this problem of pride, to the problem of this worldliness and this self-seekingness that God's people seem to always be tempted by. And the two things are poor leadership and the rejection of the Word of God. Right? Poor leadership and the rejection of the Word of God. So have a look at chapter 3. Now, chapter 3, verse 1 to 15, is a long passage pronouncing judgment on Israel's leadership. Right? Let's pick it up from, chapter, uh, from verse 12, okay? the second half of verse 12. Chapter 3, verse 12. O my people, your guides mislead you and they have swallowed up the course of your paths. The Lord has taken his place to contend. He stands to judge peoples. The Lord will enter into judgment with the elders and princes of his people. It is you who have devoured the vineyard. The spoil of the poor is in your hands, your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people? By grinding the face of the poor, declares the Lord God of hosts. You see, why have the people of Judah and Jerusalem become the way they've become? God says it's because of your leaders. It's because of your leaders. They were, they were supposed to teach and guide you in God's word and God's ways. And look at what they've done. Not only have they neglected their role, they are the perpetrators. Right? They're the ones who are stealing from people and rubbing the faces of the poor in the dirt by oppressing them to make more of themselves. And you see, this is 3, 1 to 15, right? And then what comes up in verse 16? That's the women that we just saw before. They, they may have been the wives of these elders, the wives of these princes, of these rulers, following in the same mindset of living as their husbands, living the same godless self-service. Poor leadership of God's people. What a disaster. What a disaster. Now, those of you who are in international YF have been doing 2 Timothy. And last night and on Friday night, we looked at 2 Timothy 2 verse 1 and 2, and we saw how the Apostle Paul told Timothy that he had to entrust this gospel to faithful men and women who will be able to entrust it down to the next generation. Now, what happens if one generation of leaders, of those who are entrusted with the Word of God and the ways of God, shirk the responsibility? How do you pass it on? So much of our failings can be directed against our leaders, isn't it? We rely on them to teach us and to guide us, to show us the truth from God's Word and to live it out. I covet your prayers, right, for, for me and for Steve and for the leaders of this church. Because if we screw up, the damage is going to be great. And you ought to be praying for your churches back home, wherever you've come from. You ought to be praying for churches in which you're worried about, when you hear things that are concerning to you about their false teaching or their false ways. Poor leadership in the church is a disaster. It's a warning and encouragement for the leaders here sitting 
where you are. For me and for any leaders here, we've got to know God and His Word, and we've got to live it out because the responsibility is great. There's also leadership in the home, isn't it? In Christian homes. Now, it's a grieving thing, grievous thing to, to hear about how there are so many Christian homes in which the leaders of that home, which are the parents, the dad and the mum, they shirk their responsibility to teach the Word of God and to model it out. For some reason, there are too many of us who are learning God's Word well and having to teach our parents. Pray for your parents. Maybe they've already made mistakes they can't change. But you might be a parent one day. Maybe you're a parent now. Take your responsibility seriously to teach God's Word and to live out His ways. For if there's leadership problems in the church and leadership problems in the home, what hope is there for God's people? Now, by God's grace, thankfully, that can still be hope. But the responsibility really is on us, isn't it? From leadership problems, we see that the other contributing factor to the failure of God's people to live out their calling is the rejection of the word. In chapter 5, we see this uh, judgment and woes. And interspersed in it are reasons for why they are being judged, um, why they have fallen so far short. Right? Verse 13, chapter 5, verse 13. Therefore, my people go into exile for lack of knowledge. And then in verse 24, second half, right? Reason, for they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts, and they have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. The people of God have rejected the word of God. That's crazy. You remember what God said about the ideal city? What Judah and Jerusalem should have been? Turn back to chapter 2, verse 3, right? Let's just go and remind ourselves what we heard right at the beginning. What was so good about this city? How did it bring blessing to the nations? Well, the nations go because they see God's word being taught and lived out. Right? They go to be taught God's ways. They go to learn the law of God, the word of God. They go there because the word and the law of God reveals God in his glory. Because the word of God transforms and gives life and brings peace. The restoration of humanity's sins. But the people of God have done the exact opposite. Rather be a channel of blessing through the word lived out. They rejected the word and it became impossible to walk with God. Chapter 2, verse 5, Isaiah says, Come and walk in the light of the Lord. And the light of the Lord is found in his word, isn't it? Famous verse from, from Psalm, uh, Psalm 119. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. If you don't live in the word, you can't live in the light. And you can't be a light to the nations. If you don't live by the word, you will shrivel up and die spiritually. That's what Jesus said, isn't it? Quoting from Deuteronomy. Jesus said to Satan, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Without the word, we will shrivel up and die. Without the word, we will drift away towards the world. But we don't just stand still when we don't read our Bibles. Right? Spiritually, we don't stand still. The world is constantly pulling us. It's like we're on a travelator, right? That you don't realize. Very small, slow-moving, Travelator, you know, like in the airports, the flat ones, because you're too lazy to walk, right? You need a travelator to 
you know, leave you across slowly. And when you are standing still, you're actually going towards the world. And what the Word of God tells us is that the Word is what turns us around and helps us to walk against the grain of worldliness. That's how we can continue steadfast. That's how we don't reject God and we don't reject His calling in our lives. If we disconnect ourselves from the Word, we're actually going towards the world. And without the Word of God in our minds and on our lips, understood, believed, and proclaimed, we have no use to the world. For the gospel is the word of life. For the word of God is his glory. It leads us to peace and hope and life. What use are we if we neglect the word and we have nothing to share to the world around us? Now for Judah and Jerusalem in the 8th century, their denial of God and their failure led them to near destruction. They eventually will be exiled, as we read on in, 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 in Isaiah. And chapters 1 to 5 tells us why this has happened. They were sinful children of God, and they were sinful elect who neglected and rejected their calling. But thankfully, that's not the end of the story. Even within these, five, these uh, four chapters, it began with the ideal. In chapter 4, it reminds us how this ideal will be achieved. Have a look at chapter 4, verse 2 to 6, right? Our last look at Isaiah for today. Isaiah 4, verse 2 to 6. After all this judgment, Isaiah reveals this vision of the future. In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy, everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem, when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning. Then the Lord will create over the whole side of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and a shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a canopy. There will be a booth for shade by day from the heat and a forer refuge and a shelter from the storm and rain. Now, if you don't get the poetry, once again, simply put, God will purify his people from their sins. Go will once again be with them, just like in the Exodus, the picture of the cloud by day and the fire by night. God will once again place his glory as a canopy over his people, and they will be a source of peace. Now, in that day, they didn't know how this was be fulfilled. They never saw it, but we know as Christians, right? As we first fast forward into the gospel, we know that Jesus Christ achieves this cleansing, this purification. He achieves this presence of God in our lives, individually as a church. And he restores our calling to be God's holy people. And 1 Peter is a beautiful way of, of explaining to us what this means for us today. Right? 1 Peter chapter 2. This is who we are, right? You. This you is you now, right? Me, Christians. But you and I are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Beloved, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh with wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds 
glorify God on the day of visitation. Can you see our calling here so clearly spelled out, right? We are those who are to proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness. Proclaim God and His gospel of Jesus Christ. That's our word. And what is our ways? We are to live lives of our conduct that is honorable, that is lived out the gospel, right? That doesn't contradict the word of God so that the Gentiles, the nations, will see and glorify God through our word and through our ways, through our gospel and lived out gospel. We will bring blessings to the nations. So the question this morning is, how are we going with that? How are we going with that? And the big question to ask is, who do we regard more? Who do you regard more? Man or God? Whose glory do you want more of? This world's or God? Like I say, wanting the glories of this world doesn't mean you always feel high and mighty. It could also mean you're always depressed because you're regarding what man thinks of you. Because you're chasing after the things of this world, and you may get it, and you may not. But the encouragement and the challenge for us this morning is as God's people, regard God. Regard His glory. Regard His calling for you to be a channel of blessings to others in your word and your ways of the gospel. This was written for us to show us how Israel failed their calling so, so miserably. What a tragedy it would be for us if as God's people today, we do not learn the lessons of their failings. Let me pray. (coughs) Holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty, as we come before your word, which is full of your judgment and your condemnation of your people and their failings to, to... to love you and to worship you and to live out their calling. We pray so much that you would impact our our, our minds and our hearts to really reflect on whether we are just like Israel, whether we are living in functional denial of you in our day-to-day lives, whether we are in fact rejecting our calling to be proclaimers of your excellencies, to be preachers of the gospel, to be models for Christian life and love and peace and goodness. We pray that your hard word today would really shake us up so that we can see, first of all, the amazing grace and mercy you've shown through Christ, about how in Christ we are made pure, we have been cleansed, and we will continue to be restored to do your work, to keep trusting in him, but also for us to be motivated and challenged to keep pressing on in regarding you and your ways and your calling more than the ways of man. You know each and every single one of us who call on Jesus as Lord. You know our struggles. You know what lures our attention, what is tickling our pride, what we we are tempted to chase after. In each of these ways in our lives, we pray that you'll do your specific and powerful work by your Spirit so that we may know you and love you and serve you and bring such blessing to the world around us. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.